you do what you have to do, right, to, to survive. So unfortunately, the whole world no longer really allows for too much idiosyncrasies with regards to musicians. Unfortunately, it's like we're all crammed into these corporate hours and if we don't adhere to them, it's causes problems. What are some of those things that you've been required to, to do in terms of, you know, living up to corporate requirements? You know, I just feel that the world is becoming more and more rigid, you know, and any, like I said, any kind of idiosyncratic behavior is kind of looked upon as shocking and unacceptable. And musicians are expected to, to sort of be a certain way. You know, I think it's quite different from when I first became involved with music and things were just a bit looser and a bit more fun and uh, having to do Zoom interviews and things like that and live streams and all that shit. You know, it's just like, wasn't the world I, I was introduced to back in the early 80s when I started out. I think there's there's two things at play here, right? There's sort of the broader, obviously, music in general, as, as the world has as well, has become more corporate. But then Zoom interviews is at least a little bit of a result of what's happened over the past year and a half. Of course. But I mean, I, I don't think it could have played into the hands of corporate uh, corporate America better, right? I mean, it just suits them down to the ground. So personally, I find it a little ghastly, but you know, you either do it, as my manager said to me, you either, look, you either do it or you don't do it. If you don't do it, you don't get any press. It's up to you because we were releasing a new record and I was like, oh, okay, you know, okay, I'll do it. Um, because obviously as a, as a band, you need press, you need coverage, you need support, you know, so you're kind of cornered into a sort of way of working that isn't necessarily the most inherent to your process. I think that's fair. I mean, certainly before the pandemic, I was doing all of these in person, but obviously it can't really be done at this point. Again, you know, you've been doing your own podcast for, I guess, what, maybe two, three years now. Are you more comfortable on the other side of the microphone when it comes to interviews? Mm, I don't necessarily feel comfortable, but I, it's been, an, I, I love doing it. It's been an extraordinary gift at this point in my life, you know, it's like going to music class, basically, to learn and study under these amazing minds. It's, I've really, really can't believe I've been given this opportunity at this point in my life. I've loved every second of it. The music thing is something that you've been doing for some time now. You still feel like there's a lot to learn? Of course, yeah. I mean, there's always things to learn, right? I think when you stop learning, you you may as well give up and just walk away. I mean, the great Pablo Casals, in, when his 90th year, was asked why he, you know, continued to practice every day. And he said, because I still think there's something to learn. I mean, you, you never stop learning. I don't think about what you what you love doing. You know, just always discover something new all, every day. So, yeah, to sit down with all these amazing people and learn from them has been exciting and stimulating and inspiring. Was that the initial impulse behind starting this or were you just kind of looking to, I don't know, maybe get out of your comfort zone a bit? No, I mean, I, the offer to become the host of this podcast came out of the blue. It was Rishikesh Hirway from a Song Exploder called me up and just said, listen, I'm working on this new idea for a podcast and I think you are the person that should be, be the host. And I was like, really? And... I was very nervous about doing it. I didn't feel like I was educated enough. I didn't feel I was smart enough. And it was actually, again, my manager who was like, you're an idiot if you turn this down. You're a fucking idiot. And I was like, I just feel like it's too much. And I feel like my debt. And he was like, you're an idiot if you turn it down. So I said yes. And, and then I did the first season. And I was really hooked. You know, I just really loved 
I love the process. I met these extraordinary artists. I mean, what's not to love, right? So I'm glad I did it in the end. But I, do, I continue to feel a little out of my depth, I guess. But, you know, I, I just I think the kind of person I am, like, I'm never going to feel educated and authorized. So here we are. What is your sense of what he saw or heard in you that he thought that you would be the right person for this gig? Um, I don't know. I have absolutely no idea. You still haven't figured that out a couple of seasons in? I do. I am curious, right? I'm a really nosy person. Like, I'm really curious about other people. I love, and I love musicians in particular, and I'm curious about them, and I'm empathetic. Not that, I mean, there's a billion one people that could have gotten you know, the, the, the call, but I got the call. I'm also incredibly lucky. I'm a lucky bastard. I have my whole life. I've been given these extraordinary opportunities and why this ha- continues to happen to me. I'm not entirely sure, but Rishi obviously saw something in me that he thought would work in this context. And I think we've all been surprised by the reception, you know, it's been quite delightful. I think it's important to contextualize things or at least appreciate in life where luck has played a role but you know surely surely at a certain point you, you must uh sorry that wasn't that was an airplane joke <laughs> i almost. know it was funny <laughs> at a certain point you must feel like oh i'm i'm doing something right or at least i i can appreciate why people appreciate this thing that i'm doing i don't know you know i come from my father's an academic and has has literally marked every single thing i've done in my life out of 10 uh, I'm, I'm, I'm being absolutely literal here when I say that. Every gig is measured on a scale from one to ten. Every meal I I, I create uh, is measured from from one to ten. And you know he's had his way with with my podcast too, and criticised my laugh, and you know worried, gotten worried that some of the fans haven't liked this about it or that. And you know I, that's what I've grown up with my whole life. So there's this running commentary in my brain, my always that I'm just not hitting number I'm just not hitting the mark you know and that has driven me to succeed I think in my life but it's also caused me a lot of angst unfortunately so I never really feel that I've achieved anything ever because (laughs) because I never get 10 out of 10 from my dad I mean it's crazy I can appreciate that from the standpoint that you're not content to rest on your laurels but you can certainly be motivated by negativity and that will push Mm. you to be better but I don't know at a certain point if you're going to continue to do something you know music specifically for as long as you've done it it must feel like something is going right somewhere down the road of course of course of course but you know negativity has been a huge driver in my life in a funny way whether I want it there or not it exists and so I've learned to sort of lie in bed with it you know you have to you develop throughout your life um, according to this a series of events and, and things that occur to you uh, that, that happen, but you can never really shake your upbringing. Like your upbringing comes with you, I think, to your deathbed. And as much as I have tried to counter my upbringing, it remains in bed with me, and I, I, I can't imagine it ever going away. But like I said, it has a, it really has spurred me on in many, many ways in my life. It's made me tough. It's I've been able to sustain a lot of criticism throughout my career which I think would have perhaps stopped a lot of people in their tracks so you know I'm tough and I'm grateful for that you have to be if you're doing anything in the public realm you have to be able to weather the commentary that comes along with that that's a good outlook there because you can certainly go 
as somebody who is used to criticism or grew up with criticism, you can go in one of two directions. You can either weather it the way you have, which is obviously the good way to go, or it becomes a lot easier, I think, to in- internalize it. it. It becomes a lot easier to realize that like, oh, well, a lot of people are saying that I am not worthy or I'm not doing something right. And, and that can snowball really quickly. Mm, really quickly. I mean, I think that's why we're seeing a lot of uh, young artists in particular in this particular um, you know, climate where social media is, has got such a huge imprint in our lives that they're just taking their ball and going home. They can't really sustain, they can't weather the blows that come inevitably with every career, no matter how good you are. And I see a lot of them crumble under that kind of pressure. They just are like, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm having mental health problems. I'm canceling this show. I'm coming off Instagram for 10 minutes. Uh, you know, it's just, you can see, you can actually watch some of the meltdown occur. And, and I have a lot of sympathy for these kids because criticism, like I said, comes with the territory. It sounds like you largely tend to internalize it. And garbage specifically has been a very consistent lineup over the years. So clearly you all seem to get along with each other or at least put up with each other. Does that sort of criticism ever manifest itself in more of kind of an external way in that does it make, does it also make you harder on others? I think that a particular period in the band's career that the criticism we endured was A, unexpected, B, complete (laughs) it was awful and it definitely had an effect on the the whole band psyche and the way that we all related to one another for sure um because you know when you're you imagine you are publicly failing you blame yourself and then you also blame each other so there's this perverse sort of dichotomy that occurs or at least for us it kind of drove a wedge in some ways between us as 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 band members, which eventually took its toll on us all by the time we had completed the fourth record and, and we took a break. I think that was a result of group criticism that uh, really kind of caused a bit of a maelstrom uh, in in our group, but. Again, in any career, any career that lasts any length of time, there will always be these passages of uh, either complete ambivalence towards you or or uh, aggression, you know, and, and that is just something that you, over time, do learn to live with and defy, you know, any, again, any artist that lasts any length of time is, has to be defiant. You have to just be like, well, fuck you fuck everyone was it that fourth record or was that fourth record really just kind of the breaking point yeah it was the breaking point it was the third record that we you know we'd had this incredible trajectory and then we released the record literally i think two weeks or 10 days after september 11th it was a fiasco of monumental (laughs) proportions and our whole promotional campaign was scuppered and basically the record just died we got dropped from radio and having enjoyed unbelievable radio support throughout our career we just lost all support and it, we didn't understand we didn't understand what had happened basically and now you know looking back on it you can sort of see you know oh this had occurred societally and this was happening musically and you know you start putting all the pieces together of the, of the jigsaw but at the time you just feel like somebody's taking a baseball bat and hit you over the head you know, because we were just on such a high 
and then and then uh, didn't really know what to do, you know, because we had been relying on the kind of support that we had become accustomed to. So you essentially still had enough built-in momentum to get you through that fourth record, but then the wheels just kind of came off for the group. Yeah, yeah, the wheels eventually just sort of dribbled off the wagon. <laughs> yeah, it was intense, you know, but it was an intense time for everyone in the world. You know, September 11th changed so much for all of us. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things that in, in hindsight, it makes perfect sense that the world, mm-hmm. the world reacting to to this huge terrorist attack in the U.S., you know, maybe wasn't going to be like super welcoming of, uh, you know, of, of whatever kind of art. But I guess I guess when you're your head's down and you've been in it for so long, it's really it's difficult to parse that out. I mean, it's rejection. It's like it, it just felt like, you know, when you get dumped, when, when a boyfriend dumps you, it felt it felt kind of the same way, you know. Anyway, we survived it. We got through it in the end. It seems like an awfully long time ago now. I mean, it is. You know, yeah. it's, we're, it's 20 years Twenty years next month. Literally 20 years. I mean, we're celebrating our third record's anniversary and this poor record that we're very proud of and love dearly. Again, a very idiosyncratic record and very esoteric in, in the way that we approached it. We're very proud of it. I think we took a lot of risks and we got punished for it. But, you know, now that we have survived we're like wow we've got a shitload of great songs in our arsenal you know that we can you know pull out on any given day and it feels like we feel a little vindicated I guess you know a lot of the songs on that record have become sort of live favorites the fans who initially were really disappointed in us like furious with us have now you know written us a lot of messages on social media saying you know what I hated this record when it came out we're so disappointed in you I was furious with you and now, you know, it's my favorite garbage record. So there is a feeling of like, yes, <laughs> vindication. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so again, there are these larger societal forces, but very rarely, certainly in this day and age, very rarely can you use words like idiosyncratic and esoteric to refer to like a huge pop record. Did it feel that way when you were making the record? Did it feel like a left turn? Did it feel like something that might alienate some of the built-in fan base we didn't expect alienation i mean i we did know that we were taking a lot of chances but we thought that was the natural order of 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 things like we felt like we'd be really dull to just let's churn out another record that sounds exactly the same as the last two records you know we wanted to take some chances and we wanted to explore we felt it was a very modern approach to not just be pinned down as an uh, you know, a guitar-driven alt band. Like we felt like we wanted to explore other, you know, um, areas of, of sound and, and and production in particular. Yeah, we were we 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 played. I remember playing the record for our management, uh, Cupine Management, who are you know a very respected company. They're really smart. They've got so much experience, and they too were entranced with this record. They were like, "You've made a fucking great record," and everyone was really on a high. You know, we were really excited. Um, we brought in a lot of early press journalists to come and listen to the record. They too had a great response to it and wrote great reviews. And then, you know, the, the world shifted on its axis and all of a sudden, you know, the white stripes and the strokes were where it was at. And we had made a record that sounded very glossy, heavily produced. And, and of course, the strokes and the white stripes were bringing in garage, you know, ga- ga- raw garage sound. And I remember... I've told this story a million times before, but it always thrills me as I was on Amazon.com and I was like, who is this band, The White Stripes? And I clicked on one song 
uh, from the still, I think. And and I clicked on it and about 30 seconds went by. Jack's voice came in and I was, I literally in my head went, oh, we're in trouble. Oh, shit, we're in trouble. Like I knew it deep, deep down. I knew it. I was like, this is, first of all, it's irresistible and, and, and incredible. And this is out of step with, with the record we've just made. So we're fucked. If the story did end there, you know, having two well-received records is still a lot more than most people in this world get. Yeah, I mean, we've just had a highly regarded, beautifully reviewed seventh record, you know, of which we're enormously proud of. And uh, we don't feel our story has ended whatsoever, um, nor do we necessarily, for all our own mental fuck-ups and struggles with with uh, criticism and, and failure in adverted commas, I think it doesn't stop our enjoyment or our pride in, in the work. All we love all our records. We've never, we don't believe we've ever put out a poor record ever. We've worked, struggled to make sure that the records are really strong. Now, whether other people, you know, at the time respond to it upon release is one thing, but we watch the response from the crowds every night when we play. And, you know, the, the crowd will very quickly tell you whether something's a good idea or a bad idea. If you get a great response to something, that says it all. It doesn't really matter what the critics are saying. If, if people in the room are responding to what you're playing. Certainly there are positive things to take away from slowing the momentum or backing away and being able to, to re-examine things. Do, do you think that moment having come when it did was ultimately a positive? I do, actually, perversely enough. I mean, look. I'm a 50, soon to be 55 year old woman working in the music industry, playing and uh, making records and being distributed by one of the largest record labels in the world. I feel like that says it all. Do you know what I mean? Like that says it all because it doesn't happen to very many women still to this day. It's still very difficult to navigate a career in the music business that is fixated with youth and beauty. So the fact that our band is, is still here we're very, very grateful and realise what privileged position we're in. Perversely, the story surrounding Beautiful Garbage, for me, is a kind of a beautiful one because it's so dramatic and it's so tightly wound up with this cataclysmic insanity that occurred on September 11th, you know. And it's something that none of us will ever forget. And the fact that the record is woven in with that and that it took such a battering sort of feels poetic to me. It's like it, it didn't, it wasn't ironclad, you know. It too got got destroyed. And, and in some ways that feels like it was appropriate, you know. And then we were sort of then released from any kind of pressure whatsoever because that nobody expected us to survive that blow and we did and we continue to and I think in some ways had that record not been dismantled the way it was I don't know if we'd still be here making records do you know because it gave us something to fight against making records and uh, you know not to get like too doomy about or too dark about it but in some people's cases not around period. The thing about being caught up in that machine, caught up in that momentum is no one's going to tell you to take a break. And certainly you're not going to exactly. be the person to, to tell everyone to take a break because things are moving forward. And as we said before, you're in the, in the eye of the storm, you're in the eye of the hurricane. So you can't really, you don't have a moment to take stock of everything that is going wrong in your life and in your band. Exactly. Perfectly put.
It's very true. And of course, there's so much money. We were making so much money for everybody. You know, they don't want you to stop. They have no real desire to to let you rest or let you reflect or or anything. I mean, that's, again, why you see so many of these artists flame out currently. I mean, the expectations on, on artists now are fucking mad, you know, because they make insane amounts of money. They're branded and they've got money coming in from all sources and, and, the, and the corporations want them to keep going. And then they just have these little meltdowns, you know, and, and it's, and nobody seems to care. They think it's funny and it's hard to watch. It's, it's been really interesting in the past several months to really see the, the Britney Spears thing revisited Oy. out of that Oy, context yeah. and realize that um, to a certain degree, all or many of us were not only caught up in it, but we're kind of complicit <laughs> just being yes. a part of that machine. We were, we were, I mean, even like I, I watched the parallels between Britney and Billie Eilish, you know, you know, he, you know, she comes into making her second record. All of a sudden, she's getting it in the neck. You know, um, for the way she chose to present herself on her first magazine cover, it's like it's none of your fucking business, <laughs> y'all. How she decides to portray herself, you know, and instead, this young, very young girl, still only what nineteen years old, is is weathering this storm of analysis and criticism and. I don't know. I, I I think it's weird and sort of like twisted. It's like, you know, being fascinated with your, you know, your daughter's teenage best friend. It's like, it's not appropriate for adults, quite frankly. <laughs> I just think it's really creepy. I read the, the Times piece that you had a few years back where you, you know, dealt with some of your, some of your depression and some of the issues that you went through. I think, you know, in a lot of cases, or at least as it pertained to that piece were, you know, prior to to garbage uh, and to you really seeing that kind of success. But when you already have some of those sort of underlying things that you're dealing with, and then you get caught up in, in this machine, I assume that means that all of your mental health struggles have to kind of take a back seat to making sure that this thing you're a part of is a success. Well, you know, in my case, I felt like I was really busy, which helped with my my depression. Like when when you're busy, I, when I I was so busy that I didn't have really time to to worry about things that I previously allowed to to overwhelm me. You know, um, and my mental health is to be to be honest. Like looking back on it now, you know, I don't I don't really have mental health problems in that. Sure, I've had, I've suffered with some bouts of depression, but they've been mild. And um, you know, when you're a teenager, you think everything is like the most. I am the most depressed teenager that has ever existed. As it turns out, I think it's just perfectly normal. And so, I've been very blessed actually that I'm mentally tough. And um, sure, I've had some freakouts. Um, you know, when you're under the spotlight, when you're when you walk through an airport, for a random example, and you're on the cover of five different magazines it's embarrassing and and you think the whole world's looking at you of course they're not but you think they are and you get very self-conscious and that causes you to worry about your body weight or your teeth or your hair or your face or you know the list is endless and that can be very disorienting and upsetting but you know in the great scheme of things there's there they were small concerns for me I was able to sort of keep them at keep these concerns and obsessions kind of at bay but of course not everyone is 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 equipped like I am and so I think that is what causes a lot of uh, angst in in these particularly the young stars you know who are who are being asked 
to 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 sort of perform and provide in ways that older artists are not not we're just not expected to to you know give that much anymore it's when you're young when everybody wants you and wants to be around you and is attracted to you and wants a little piece of whatever that imagined stardust is that's that's it's really demanding and and frightening in many ways it's one thing to triumph over those issues in 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 your personal life but it's another thing to take the initiative and sit down and write about it for you know the paper of record for the you know the this huge newspaper um certainly you know you weren't a teenager and you weren't first and, and you were pretty far removed from from when you were really dealing with those issues when you did sit down to write it what made you sort of want to sit down and and share this thing about yourself are you referring to being a self-cutter is that what you're yeah yeah that the times piece i think about three years ago now it's a stigma uh self-harm is a stigma and people who are who don't engage in it are very frightened of it it seems so violent and frightening but it's incredibly common and the statistics now regarding self-harming in in teenage communities is utterly terrifying and I felt it was really important to talk about it um, I always have I've never been shy about mentioning that I was a self-harmer I think instinctively I've always known that actually it's it wasn't unique to me this was something that so millions and millions of people engage in male and female although it's it's worse uh, in teenage girls than it is with teenage boys but they st- there are still teenage boys who, who you know engage in it and so I wanted to talk about it because I think when you talk about things, it, they demystify things immediately. They take away their power. You know, um, I think it's so dangerous not to call it for what it is. You know, I think that's that. That was the driving force behind me writing that piece, and also, you know, you know, it's my truth. It's my. It's what happened to me. And you never felt a, a sense of personal stigma around it then, in that way. No, I mean, I again, I've been very blessed with a kind of. I don't give a fuck kind of attitude my whole life. I don't know why I've been like that. I think it was, again, a sort of rebellion against my dad who wanted me to be a certain way. And I was just like, I will. On the face of it, these two things feel in conflict, a a feeling sort of 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 internalizing that and being hypercritical, but also not giving a fuck. You know, these these almost feel like two. Well, you're you're asking me why. They're two different things, because one, you're asking me why I have did I feel stigmatized? And I'm saying, no, I didn't because I've always felt like against my dad. I was just like, I I don't care what you think. I'm going to do me, you know? So no, I didn't feel stigmatized, which is different from the actual act of cutting. Do you see what I mean? More kind of abstractly in life in that part of you that, that you are somebody who doesn't give a fuck, but then there is a part of you who like almost gives too many fucks. Of course I give far too many fucks. I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I care too much about everything. My, my, again, it's something my husband thinks is high, highly amusing, which is he's just like, just you just care too much. Just stop caring. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't stop caring, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think the cutting is a re- release. Uh, you know, it's not an attack on yourself. It's more a, if I don't get rid of this feeling inside, I'm going to harm someone else. So it's a way of controlling rage, controlling confusion and frustration, you know, and depression, et cetera, et cetera. So instead of putting it out on someone else. It's a way to change things really quickly in the moment. <laughs> It's, you know, it's a way to exactly. sort of like forgive the term, but to, to cut the tension. Literally. Is caring too much? Is is that a problem ultimately? I think it's a bit of a problem, but it's also, I'm so glad I'm not numb. 
I mean, it, you know, for me, for my comfort of my day-to-day life, it's been a bit of a problem. But I'm so grateful that I'm still alive and aware of of other people's situations, not just centered around my own. You know, I'm, I, I feel it's a gift. I feel like I'm glad I can see. I don't want to not see, you know. But it's also a torment, yeah. So, but that's just how there's always a price to pay for any kind of, I call it a kind of a superpower, you know. When I was young, I was always criticized for being too sensitive, in adverted commas. You're too sensitive. You're, and now I'm like, I'm so grateful I'm sensitive because it is a superpower. Like you can see people's pain. You can see their joy. You can, you can actually be a witness to it instead of, you know, walking over a homeless person on the street and not actually think about what you're doing. Like, I do not ever want to walk past a homeless person in the street and not be aware of my own revolting privilege and what is happening to this person, you know, in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. You know, I don't want to be that numb. I do think there is a certain amount of compartmentalization that just has to happen in order for us to kind of function in society, right? I mean, it is... Of course, yeah. There's a threshold that you cross of carrying, carrying too much where you just... You can't function anymore. Well, there's self-preservation, right? So there's a lot of that that as well. But um, yeah, it's complicated. I mean, we're all so different. But uh, I do realize now when I I realize now when people were saying to me when I was young, "You're too this, you're too that." I'm like, no, I'm just too. <laughs> I'm just too much for you. I mean, it sounds like you do sort of like yourself now and, and you do, you know, you, you do sort of appreciate where where you are. Is that is, is that something it took a lot of time to to work toward? Oh, my God, Brian, this is like analysis that I'm in today. <laughs> Nobody has ever asked me such a question. I'm reeling from this question. <laughs> I mean, I think... Over the last decade, I have developed some pride in myself, which I'm not sure is the same thing as loving myself. I'm not very good at loving myself, and I never have been, which which greatly saddens me. But I have developed a pride in myself and and how I conducted myself in very stressful, strenuous circumstances. And I feel, yeah, I feel proud of that. And so that has helped a little with my struggling self-esteem we talked a little bit earlier about needing a break and not being able to to take it but obviously the past year and a half we've all sort of been forced to the plans that we've had were, were canceled and and we've all sort of had to sort of to sit with some of these things and 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 to sit with with ourselves yeah. especially when you are somebody who cares a lot about all these things are hap- that are happening and it does feel like <laughs> there's more happening than ever before how do you deal with that how do you how do you sort of reconcile that during a pandemic well like everybody i mean i felt that it you know completely like what's the word impotent right like i just couldn't i just felt like i was a racehorse in a stall you know i couldn't race and i was uh, i felt really constricted and rageful of course my go-to emotion I didn't deal with it very well I wasn't particularly creative I was very lucky in that we had just finished or more or less finished our our new record a couple of weeks before lockdown so at least we had this body of work that was in the bag and was waiting to come out which was the only thing really that sustained me uh, as an artist because 
you know, I didn't feel creative. I didn't have any ideas. I didn't, it wasn't, I, for the first time I wasn't reading books. I, I was paralyzed. I didn't write. I sort of found myself, I'd just be sitting either in the garden or on the side of my bed, just sitting, looking, waiting. I don't know, doing nothing, being a blob. Um, so I'm not entirely sure if I even had a method of coping. I just got through it, you know, as we all did, you know. The day breaks, we get up. <laughs> Fucking worry about where, where we can get toilet paper. And um, then we go go back to bed and ad infinitum it went on it went on forever but we also we're all here thank god at least the lucky ones are still here and you know we get to complain you were at the outset complaining about you know doing some of these um remote shows and 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 having to to do to do zoom interviews what was that process like and what was your relationship to the music like during that period when, you know, everything was more or less finished and you had to start the process of, I guess, promoting the record, Mm. but knowing that you weren't going to be able to, or not actually, I guess, not knowing when you were going to be able to tour on it. Yeah. No, it was frustrating, you know, and we waited a long time. We waited a a year and then the record company was like, well, we're putting it out in this quarter, you know, Um, and you have no say whether it comes out in whatever quarter it comes out in. And but we were also dying for it to come out. So we were excited. And um, we never did any live streams, actually, because I just don't think that's how music is supposed to be received. And I felt like I am not that desperate, you know, that I can't live for a year without performing for an audience. You know, I can control myself a little and wait. I'm just going to wait because I felt it was a reduction in, in, in what, you know, music is capable of doing. And I don't, I don't like it. I don't, I just don't think I don't know I feel like the contribution of music and musicians and artistry and songwriting has been so reduced lately you know uh, to whether you have a hit or not and I don't think that's what music is you're like music is proper connection for me so we didn't do any of that but yeah you're right when the record company said okay you're going to start doing promo and we're going to do it all by zoom (laughs) and I've got attention disorder like a bit of attention deficit disorder so when I was doing these zooms you know I'm trying to answer a question and instead I'm looking at myself looking at the interviewer looking at the interviewer looking down and maybe having a little sip of their coffee or you know somebody comes into the side of the of the screen and you can see them somebody's whispering to the interviewer I mean it was just it's a fiasco right I mean it's just things that you can deal with in real life when you're in the room becomes so like you know augmented on on screen it's like very distracting and yeah I just and weird and creepy and I don't know it's just odd but anyway I did it. You're touring again, so... Yes. Well, it's great when you're actually on stage, but it's very strange um, because, of course, we're all really worried about COVID still. Uh, we have very high concerns. So there's a bubble, you know, we've, we set up all these bubbles, backstage bubbles, band bubbles, you know, there's everyone's wearing masks all the time and um, there are no guests backstage, you know, and... It's weird. It's very different, you know, because normally you go out and tour and you have people come 
every night backstage and having little sort of mini parties and socializing and having fun. And instead, in this case, it's just me and the band, you know, me and the boys just in a small room looking at each other with our masks on. <laughs> I mean, it's fucking weird, really weird. We touched on this before about getting to a point where you don't have to worry necessarily about expectations or, you know, reception in the same way that you did in on those first few records. Being able to sort of pull that away, is that part of what enabled you to tackle the kinds of subject matter that you did on this last record? No, I just think it had gotten to the point, you know, where I felt it would be inauthentic to not cover what I was talking about all the time privately with my friends, with my family. I mean, literally all of us talking about these things, these subjects all the time. And, you know, I think as an artist, as you, as a band, as, a, as an artist, as a writer, as you get older, you know, you become, you know, people, it's not like you're the new brand new thing, right? So you, you're not, people aren't excited about you releasing a record. But the important thing is that you make good, as good work as you possibly can. And I think the secret to that is how can I be my most authentic self? That's my most original story. I mean, there's so there's just a plethora of music and sounds out there. The only thing that we have to distinguish ourselves at this point is our story, our our original, authentic story. And I just allowed that person, that that voice, to come out on this record. And I was very lucky with the band who never really questioned me on it and supported me on it and never really said, well, I think that's maybe alienating to some people. Or, I mean, they were just, they never even asked me about a lyric, not once. They just kind of brought their fire, music fire, to what I was bringing melodically and lyrically to the table. And they sort of met me, you know, the intensity was met and that allowed me to believe that they they supported me in that regard, you know. Um, I mean, we're all very similar. We're all on the same boat in terms of how we kind of look out at the world. You know, our politics are very similar. And so I, I knew they would be behind me, but um, it was nice not to be shaken at, at any point during the recording process. They were just like, they are with me, which I really appreciated. There must also be a freedom in knowing that the on the fan side, the people that have followed you up to this point are they're on board, right? They're not, they're not just people necessarily jumping on because they heard that first radio song. So they're, they're kind of with you for the long haul. It certainly seems that way. I mean, we've been blown away by fan loyalty, I must say. And the reception to this new record was so enthusiastic. We were quite shocked by that, actually, as how delighted they were. <laughs> um, but I also feel like we are proud of the fact that we have a record that again and somewhat like beautiful garbage which has these sort of ties to this cataclysmic occurrence in in 2001 with with no gods no masters it's really tied to this moment in time it's a record that couldn't have been made at any other time you know it reflects reflects the times we made it in and that feels vital to me and something i'm really really proud of that we didn't turn away you know we were able to in some ways just shine a light on on these weird times that we're living in that's the tightrope walk though right is is being able to both be in the moment and referential of the present but also have it be something that hopefully people can come back to fingers crossed when we're out of much or most of this yeah 
Yeah, God willing. Is there just sort of an expectation after every garbage record that there's going to be another one that you're going to keep doing this? Mm, I wouldn't say expectation, to be honest. Although, again, we are in a, a really lucky place in our career where if we want to make another record, we know there'll be interest in it, you know, which seems like a unbelievable unbelievably privileged position to be in and something that I never can quite get over. So, yeah, I mean, Garbage is such a weird band. Like, we don't plan, we don't talk, we don't, I mean, it's just peculiar. I don't know how we stumble from pillar to post, but that's that's how we operate. We literally stumble from pillar to post and somehow we come up smelling of roses, but it, it's a disaster in so many ways, this this. This band of ours is just a yeah, hot mess. But also you found your greatest success with the thing that the one thing in life that you're not overthinking. Maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good point. <laughs> but we were delighted. We were really delighted and surprised by the, the reception No Gods, No Masters received, you know, and that it was all over the world, you know, that we were getting these lovely reports and from you know about the reception and it's so exciting you know to be at this point in our career it came as this bolt of energy which which does help propel you through shows you know which are as you get older and more and more increasingly difficult to sustain you know energy on stage is like wow what used to be super easy now I'm more aware of my body and my energy levels and how the heat affects me and you know there are practicalities that are you'd never expect all of a sudden come into play 